It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hi, everyone. This is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. And today it's going to be all about the Oscars. Now, after both years of declining viewership, and the turmoil created by the coronavirus pandemic, I think it's fair to say that the Academy Awards has been going through an awkward time. But nevertheless, after a two-month postponement, the 93rd edition of the Oscars this year will be going ahead with their celebration of all things movies on Sunday, April the 25th. And you can watch it on ABC television. So with that in mind, I thought it might be a good opportunity to present a brief history of the Oscars, which will also include some comments on their continuing relevance, as well as addressing the challenges faced by the contemporary Hollywood film industry in general. The Academy Awards has always been about more than just awarding the best in filmmaking for the year, much more. There's an obvious sense of prestige behind them, and excitement about which movie stars will be seen in their best dress clothes, <laughs> you know, who will come out on top, who loses, who is robbed of the recognition that they rightly deserved, and who gave the most emotional speech to the audience and us at home. You know, all that stuff. It happens every year, but a question that we might ask ourselves about this venerable institution is, is it still relevant? That question is something you might keep in mind, and which I will return to in this look at the history of the Oscars. And that history will include some of its more memorable events, as well as a discussion about how the Oscars have changed and evolved over the years. The first Academy Awards presentation was held on the 16th of May, 1929, at a private dinner function at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, with an audience of just about 270 people in attendance. The cost of guest tickets for that night's ceremony was $5, which translates to about $75 in today's money. Fifteen statuettes were awarded, though the recipients of those statues had been notified three months earlier. So there was no surprise. But as they continue to do so today, those statuettes, not yet known as Oscars, they honored artists, craftsmen, directors, performers, and other participants in the Hollywood filmmaking industry of the time for their work during the 1927-28 period. There was, at that time, no recognition of a world of filmmaking outside of Hollywood. And it was a very different affair from what many of us grew up watching on television. For one thing, of course, there was no such thing as a television to watch them on, not in 1929, nor was the initial ceremony broadcast on the radio. And for another thing, the actual ceremony ran for only 15 minutes. Yes, that's right. The first Oscar ceremony lasted only 15 minutes. Now, by way of comparison, the ceremony that was held back in 2002 
which is the longest ever for duration, that ran for four hours and 23 minutes. So things have changed. <laughs> Though in recent years, the Oscars have been trying to come in at under three hours. With the first awards ceremonies, the Academy would keep the results secret, but give an advanced list of winners to newspapers for publication at 11 p.m. Now, that practice continued until 1940, when the Los Angeles Times had published the winners in an earlier evening edition, which was readily available to arriving guests. And that, that's what prompted the sealed envelope system, which is still in use today. By the end of the second year, enthusiasm for the awards was such that a Los Angeles radio station produced a live broadcast. So the first time the Academy Awards were presented live for an audience at home, at least in the Los Angeles radio broadcast area. Now, the Oscars weren't yet known as the Oscars, not in the late 1920s. And in fact, that wouldn't happen until 1931, when supposedly Academy Executive Director Margaret Herrick said that the statuettes given out to winners resembled her uncle Oscar. And that remains the best explanation for why we call the Oscars the Oscars, because they apparently resembled someone's uncle named Oscar. That first year, awards could be for a single achievement, for several achievements, or for the whole body of work during the year. Actor Douglas Fairbanks, who was also the president of the Academy, made the official award presentations. And among the notable winners that year was Janet Gaynor, who received her Oscar as Best Actress for her work not in one movie, but in three movies, Seventh Heaven, Street Angel, and Sunrise. And the movie Wings, it won for Best Picture, though it received no other nominations, which is the only time that a Best Picture winner has never received any other nominations which seems odd in retrospect. Also rather odd is that the jazz singer, Hollywood's first talkie, if only in part, was not allowed to compete for Best Picture because the Academy thought that sound gave the film an unfair advantage over the rest of the nominees, which were, of course, all silent. And for the first and only time, the Academy also gave awards for both dramatic direction and comedy direction. In the case of the former, with Frank Borzage winning for Seventh Heaven, and in the case of the latter, with Lewis Milestone winning for Two Arabian Nights. The following year, in 1930, Montreal's own Norma Shearer, who was from Westmount, won the Best Actress Award for her film the Divorcee. She was also nominated in the same category that same year for her performance in a movie called Their Own Desire. And she would be nominated on four other occasions for Best Actress throughout the 30s. But her only win was for The Divorcee in 1930. 
Now, Norma Shearer, she was Hollywood royalty. Married to MGM's head of production, Irving Thalberg, before his death in 1936. And she often played spunky, sexually liberated ingenues, at least before the introduction of formal Hollywood censorship in 1934, which made such portrayals infrequent at best. Now, when I say sexually liberated, eh, certainly um, by our own standards of today, this would be something really quite modest. But a hundred years ago, uh, even broaching the subject was considered somewhat risque. Film scholar Nicholas Sal has called Norma Shearer, and I quote him here, saying that she was the exemplar of sophisticated 1930s womanhood, the first Hollywood actress to make it chic and acceptable to be single and not a virgin on screen. She has, you know, a brief moment, or rather with an actress playing her on screen in the recent Netflix movie Mank, which of course is nominated for several Oscars this year in 2021. So you might um, watch that film if you haven't seen it already. Um, It's a really wonderful film and it is all about the Hollywood film industry in this period of the 1930s. Now, the actor Frederick March, uh, he handed Norma Shearer her Oscar that night in a tradition which I think is still, really starting a tradition which I think is still upheld today, meaning that of the previous year's best actress or actor presenting the award to the current year's recipient, but of the opposite gender. Now, Such a thing is very indicative of just how freighted with tradition an institution like the Oscars is. But I predict that the Oscars just might conflate the two categories in our own time, instead of dividing the acting category according to gender, which, to judge by how things are going politically, might be something at least open for debate in the years to come. On March 16th, 1934, The Private Life of Henry VIII, a British film, became the first non-Hollywood movie to win an Academy Award, when it garnered a Best Actor Award for Charles Lawton. Now, that it wasn't until 1934 that a non-Hollywood film received an Oscar is perhaps a reminder that the Oscars has been primarily, throughout their history, intended as a marketing tool for the Hollywood filmmaking industry itself. And then even when they do honor films from elsewhere, they are almost entirely from the English-speaking world, meaning mostly Britain. And after The Private Life of Henry VIII, British films would be regarded as worthy of Oscar acknowledgement and would frequently win, though rarely would those movies from non-English-speaking countries, at least until last year, when Parasite, a South Korean movie, became the first foreign language film to win the Best Picture Oscar. And one of the reasons for that, Parasite winning last year, is I think that the Academy membership is comprised of more and more people from all over the world. Because the Hollywood industry itself is no longer confined to just a 
relatively small geographic area in Southern California, as it most certainly was in the 1930s, for example. And oh, by the way, also in 1934, we find the first confirmed newspaper reference to the Academy Award as an Oscar. And this appeared when Sidney Skolsky used the word in his syndicated gossip column. In 1935, the movie It Happened One Night achieved a quite notable success when it won not just the Best Picture Award, but also awards for Best Actor for Clark Gable, Best Actress for Claudette Colbert, Best Direction for Frank Capra, and Best Writing in the Adaptation category for Robert Riskin. And It Happened One Night remains only one of three movies to win these so-called Big Five Awards, with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1976 and The Silence of the Lambs in 1992 being the other two films to achieve this quite notable success. Music was also honored for the first time in 1935 in two categories for film score and original song. And the award for editing was also inaugurated that same year. Additionally, that year, 1935, the Academy retained for the first time the accounting firm of Price Waterhouse to tabulate the ballots and to ensure the secrecy of the results. The firm, now called Price Waterhouse Coopers, or PWC for short, continues to tabulate the voting to this day. And that's especially noteworthy because in 2017, the movie La La Land was incorrectly announced as the winner of Best Picture. What a catastrophe. After the accounting firm's Brian Cullinan gave presenters Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway the wrong envelope. I'm sure you all recall this. PwC is responsible not only for tabulating the results, but also preparing the envelopes and handing them to presenters. And what they did that night with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway was just about as bad a mess up as you could imagine. Nevertheless, the film took, the firm took full responsibility, um, as they stated, for handing the presenters the wrong envelope and apologized for the error, of course, while acknowledging that proper protocols for correcting that error were also not followed. Still, the Board of Governors for the Academy voted not long afterwards to retain the services of the accounting firm, despite the mix-up saying that new protocols have been established, including greater oversight of the entire process. In 1936, writer Dudley Nichols became the first person to refuse an Oscar for his work on the movie The Informer. Now, why did he do so? Why did he refuse this Oscar? Because the Writers Guild was on strike at the time. Dudley Nichols worked often with director John Ford, who did collect his Oscar that year for his work on The Informer. And it would be the first of John Ford's four Oscars as Best Director, which remains a record for Best Director recipient to this day. In addition to The Informer, for which actor Victor McClaglin won 
the Best Actor Award, Ford would also go on to win directing honors in subsequent years for The Grapes of Wrath in 1940, How Green Was My Valley in 1941, and in doing so controversially, at least in retrospect, beating out Orson Welles, uh, who of course made his great masterpiece, Citizen Kane, that year. Uh, and Ford would also win a Best Director Oscar for The Quiet Man in 1952. But most interestingly, he never won that award for a movie western, which is the genre he is most closely associated with, at least today. Though he had been nominated for his great movie Stagecoach back in 1939. Now, John Ford continues to be held in quite high regard today by film critics and scholars and historians, though what many would consider to be his best movie, The Searchers, made in 1956, received no Oscar nominations at all, which is a good example of both how great works of art are not always acknowledged as such in their own time, but also how artistic tastes may change from era to era. And there are many such examples throughout the history of the Oscars. You know, something I haven't mentioned up until now is the best supporting actor and actress categories. And the reason for that is because they were not, they were not initiated until 1937, when Walter Brennan, for his performance in Come and Get It, and Gail Sondergaard, for her performance in the movie Anthony Adverse, became the first winners in the supporting acting categories. That same year, Walter Disney, uh, Walt Disney excuse me, won a fifth straight Academy Award for producing the best cartoon of the year. But the big winner of 1937 was the movie The Great Ziegfeld for Best Picture and also Best Actress for Louise Rainier, who would become the first performer to win a second Oscar for her role in The Good Earth the following year. That same year, Spencer Tracy won the first of his Best Actor uh, Awards for his performance in the movie Captain's Courageous, um, and he would himself win back-to-back Best Actor Oscars when he also won for Boys Town the following year in 1938. Betty Davis also won that year in 1938 for Jezebel, which was her second best actress Oscar, the first being for the film Dangerous just a few years earlier. Betty Davis, always a trailblazer, would later serve as Academy president in 1944, if only for a few months. This was also the first year, 1938, that a foreign language film, Grand Illusion, would be nominated for Best Picture, though it would lose out to Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You. In 1940, Vivian Lee won the Oscar for Best Actress for Gone with the Wind. The film itself, of course, won Best Picture and seven other awards, none more significant, certainly, than that won by Hattie McDaniel as Best Supporting Actress for her portrayal of Mammy, a slave on the Georgia plantation of Tara in that film, Con with the Wind. Hattie McDaniel was the first African-American Oscar winner 
But somewhat shockingly, uh, she had been forced to sit in the back of the venue due to racial segregation. And it would be 50 years before another African-American woman would win an acting Oscar when Whoopi Goldberg took home the award, also in the supporting actress category, for her movie Ghost in the year 1990. Also notable firsts in the year 1940, uh, well, the movie Gone with the Wind became the first movie filmed in color to win an Academy Award for Best Picture. And also frequent future presenter Bob Hope was the master of ceremonies for the very first time. Oh, by the way, here's a little information about the actual statuette itself, the Oscar. It's said to be a design of the Mexican actor Emilio Fernandez and initially sculpted from a Cedric Gibbons design. Cedric Gibbons was a um, costume and production designer in, of longstanding in Hollywood. And um, the award itself um, was sculpted by uh, the artist George Stanley. Now, the statuettes uh, presented at the initial ceremonies were gold-plated solid bronze. But within a few years, the bronze was abandoned in favor of Britannia metal, which is a pewter-like alloy, which is then plated in copper, nickel, and finally a covered in a 24-carat gold. And it has pretty much remained the same ever since. But due to a metal shortage during World War II, Oscars were made instead of painted plaster for three years. So, woe be gone, the winner of an Oscar in those years. But following the war, the Academy invited recipients to redeem the plaster figures for the usual gold-plated metal ones. So, all was good in the end. There have been many arguments over the years uh, as to which films and performance, performers excuse me, have deserved to win, and which of those have not. I mentioned earlier uh, John Ford's adaptation of How Green Was My Valley, which is certainly a well-crafted movie, but even without the benefit of 80 years of hindsight, it probably had no business beating out the far superior Citizen Kane for Best Picture. Uh, Valley that year in 1941 won five Oscars, including Best Director, while Kane, which of course was a highly controversial project because of its thinly veiled biographical depiction of the newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst, only won an Oscar for Best Screenplay. Now, if it wasn't clear in the first 13 years of the Oscars what tickled Academy voters fancy the most, I think it was definitely clear by the early 40s. And that is, in relation to these two films, How Green Was My Valley versus, say, Citizen, and versus Citizen Kane, if forced to choose between a safe, comfortable, sentimental drama like How Green Was My Valley and a challenging, visionary achievement 
like Citizen Kane, then the Academy would more often than not go for the former. Though it must be said, in recent years, and equally controversially, the Academy has been awarding, certainly as for Best Picture, films that are um, much more challenging for mainstream audiences than they had been in a subsequent decade, in uh, previous decades. And I'm thinking here not only of Parasite, but um, also um, such a movie as Moonlight and um, others as well in the last uh, few years. And many people attribute that to um, some of the declining viewership numbers in uh, these recent years, because the Academy seems to be um, more interested in awarding uh, slightly more arcane, uh, critically um, demanding movies at the expense of much more broadly popular ones, which is something the Academy itself has um, observed and attempted to address by expanding the best picture category from five movies to 10 films in the past decade. In 1942, a documentary category appeared on the ballot for the first time. And that same year, Joan Fontaine would win the Oscar for Best Actress for her role in Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion. Her sister, Olivia de Havilland, would, um, in subsequent years, in fact, in 1947 and in 1950, win Best Actress Oscars for her movies to each his own and the heiress. And to date, they are the only sisters to win Best Actress Awards. In 1943, Greer Garson gave what is the longest Oscar speech of all time. And I guess you could say that we have her to thank for today's 45-second maximum Oscar acceptance speech role. Garson, who had won the Best Actress Award for Mrs. Miniver, began her speech rather humbly by acknowledging the crowd. Thank you, she said. That is really all there is to say. But, <laughs> as this is, after all, the opportunity of a lifetime, I hope you won't mind if I try to expand that word just a little. And then she proceeded to speak for five minutes at one o'clock in the morning. This was at a time when winners often gave no speech at all, or very short remarks. So it was, uh, it was really quite a notable event. And it was also the last award of the night, and past midnight, so it gained an immediate reputation, which uh, still lives on today. In 1945, Ingrid Bergman won the first of her Best Actress awards for the movie Gaslight, uh, she would also win in 1957 for the movie Anastasia, as well as a Best Supporting Actress Award in 1975 for Murder on the Orient Express. Leo McCary, the great filmmaker Leo McCary, that year uh, became the first person to win an Oscar for both directing and writing, and that was for the movie going my way. He had won an earlier Oscar for Best Director in 1937 for uh, The Awful Truth. 
1947, the best years of our lives, won the Best Picture Award, and its director, William Wyler, won the Best Director Award. Now, although William Wyler won three times in his career as Best Director, also for Mrs. Miniver, and later in 1959 for Ben-Hur, he received in total an incredible 12 Best Director nominations, three more than anyone else. Martin Scorsese has nine nominations in total, while Billy Wilder is third among Best Director nominations with uh, eight in total. Also in 1947, the first special award was given to honor a foreign language movie, and that was given to the Italian film Shoeshine, which was directed by Vittorio De Sica. Now, seven more special awards were presented uh, before Best Foreign Language Film became an annual category in 1956. I mean, Hollywood could no longer continue to mostly ignore the great uh, filmmaking being made in non-English language speaking countries. And perhaps not unrelatedly, um, Laurence Olivier's adaptation of Hamlet in 1949 became the first non-Hollywood film to win Best Picture. It was financed and filmed entirely in England. And uh, Olivier would also win the Best Actor Award as um, in the title role, of course. Though Douglas Fairbanks Jr. would accept the award on his behalf. Uh, Olivier had remained in England during, for the ceremony. And for the first time, the Academy gave awards for costume design that year in 1949 though nominees were separately classified between color films, uh, in this case, Joan of Arc winning, and uh, black and white films, for which uh, Hamlet won the costume award. That same year, father and son Walter and John Houston won Oscars in 1949. Walter Houston winning uh, the Best Supporting Actor for his performance in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and John Huston won his Oscar for directing that movie, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Now, of course, someone else in this family has also won an Oscar, and that would be the actress Angelica Houston, who won the Best uh, Supporting Actress Award um, 35 years later for the movie Pritzi's Honor. There is another three-generation Oscar-winning family in addition to the Houstons, but, you know, I think I might leave that until next time before uh, telling you who it is. But for now, let's call it a wrap on part one of my look at the history of the Oscars. And I hope that you'll look forward to part two when I'll provide more information, insight, and opinions about this venerable institution, including a discussion of present-day controversies and challenges and where the Oscars might be going from here. 
So please join me then. And remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best and bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March, 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Code St. Luke, visit codesaintluke.org. Have a great day.